do keep your um, Bibles open at that page. That would be helpful. (laughs) And let us pray together. Lord, you are our God and our Lord, our Saviour. Thank you that you have given us your word, the Bible. Thank you that it is powerful. And we pray that you will use my words by your Holy Spirit. And may they teach us and help us as we continue to follow you. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are continuing in our series in 2 Corinthians And we've got to chapter 10 here and verses um, 7 to 18. I enjoy looking at uh, the evening news every day and spotting anything that is church-related. So this week, um, I was pleased to see on Tuesday uh, a very good article by Rowan here, uh, Mantel, a member of our church, on uh, Nicholas Fazy, the, the vicar of um, St. Luke's. Uh, and uh, it, it was great just to read a little bit of his testimony. I understand uh, that somebody has already bought his book, um, having seen that article. I wonder what you would say if I was to ask you, what are the characteristics of an authoritative God-given ministry? Is it one that's persuasive? Is it, is it one that's powerful? If so, then how might that power be exercised? Is it productive? Or is it more than that? Let's have a look at what St. Paul had to say in defense of his apostolic ministry when some of the Corinthian church challenge his authority, and let's see what we can learn from that. So Paul defends his apostolic ministry. Paul always was a passionate man. And until he met Jesus on the Damascus Road, he was violently anti-Christian. But following this God encounter, which we read in Acts chapter 9, he learned that he was God's chosen instrument and he was commissioned to preach the gospel to the Jews and to the Gentiles. He discovered that he would have to suffer for the name of Jesus. We read that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and that he was baptized as a public declaration of his allegiance to Jesus. When he first came to Corinth via Athens on his second missionary journey, he didn't preach as some expected, with the suave wisdom and eloquence of Greek orators, although we know that he was capable of doing that by the way he had addressed the Areopagus in Athens, in which we've, we can read in Acts chapter 17. But rather, he chose to speak plainly to the people about Jesus and his death on the cross. He says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, I didn't want anything to get in the way of the message of the gospel. And Paul, hearing that some super self-styled apostles in Corinth were putting it about that he appeared timid, 
2 Corinthians 10, verse 1, which um, Diana spoke of last week. They put it about that he was timid and unimpressive, verse 10, when he spoke to them on his previous visit. And this was causing some division in the church. So he writes to defend his apostolic authority. His opponents implied that he was two-faced, being timid when he was speaking to them face-to-face and only bold when he was writing his letters and he wasn't with them. You can almost hear them asking, what sort of an apostle is he anyway? Surely any teacher worth his salt would be stimulating and intellectually rigorous when addressing the church. And why didn't he expect to be paid for his efforts? We do, after all, rather than plying his tent-making trade late into the evening. These super-apostles also considered that his suffering actually disqualified him as an apostle. So, all in all, they thought that they were the ones who now had the right to exercise apostolic authority in Corinth. At first glance, we might think that it's Paul's personality or his manner of ministry that's being taken and called into question. But it's far more than that. The fundamental issue at stake in Corinth was the gospel itself, as it had been preached and embodied by Paul. Obviously, nobody could, um, uh, nobody could dispute uh, what he had actually achieved. He'd founded the Corinthian church and performed signs and wonders among them. But now, some of them wanted him out. So here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 7 to 18, we see how Paul defends his apostolic ministry, his, his apostolic authority, and his God-given ministry, which is to preach the gospel. Look, says Paul, verse 7, you're only looking at the surface of things. You who belong to the Christian party must remember that I too belong to Christ. In truth, Paul was an apostle. He had dramatically met the risen Lord Jesus, and Jesus had specifically commissioned him to preach the gospel. We learn from his letter to the Galatians, chapter 2 and verse 9, that he'd also spent time with some of the apostles, Peter, James, and John, and so he'd obviously learned from them. Despite referring to himself as the least of the apostles, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, by the grace of God, he was an apostle, having been called, chosen, commissioned by Jesus for a specific ministry. He therefore spoke as an apostle with apostolic authority. And the very way in which he was behaving, writing boldly and forcefully in his letters to redress wrong, while showing meekness and gentleness of Christ in presenting the gospel, and in deciding to support himself in ministry. They were all genuine expressions of his apostolic commitment to the Corinthians. He cared for them, 
and he wanted to build them up in the faith. If his plain, straightforward manner of speaking appeared to them to amount to nothing, it reflected the truth that God often chooses the things that amount to nothing in order that everyone might rely on God's power and gifts rather than their own ability. Paul had determined to come to Corinth, not with wise and persuasive words, but in the power of the Holy Spirit, for a very clear reason, that their faith was not based on man's wisdom, but on God's power. His point was that unless the Holy Spirit works in the listener's heart, all the wisdom and eloquence of the preacher are ineffective. His confidence as a preacher relied purely on the calling and authority he'd been given by Jesus and the working of his Holy Spirit in and through him. As an apostle, Paul's primary purpose was the salvation of God's people. Remember, Jesus had commissioned his apostles in Matthew 28 to go and preach the gospel to all nations. Paul's ministry was preaching the gospel in order to build them up, verse 8, and not to pull them down. The forceful demands he made in his letters were written so that the Corinthians, who were still rebelling against his authority, could be reconciled to him, so that when he came on his next visit, there'd be no need for disciplined action, but rather a readiness to be further built up in the faith. Paul already had the authority to build them up in the faith. He was, in fact, their father in the faith, as it was the gospel he preached to them that the, gospel, that the Corinthians first believed. If they denied Paul now, they were denying their own standing in Christ. This is why it was so strategic that Paul responded to the allegations of his opponents and re-established his apostolic authority, placing the gospel and the initiative of God clearly back into the center. It was also through Paul that they'd received the Holy Spirit. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And this in itself testified to the fact that it was Paul, not his opponents, to whom God had delegated apostolic authority in Corinth. He was not going to be ashamed of either the authority he had been given or even using it, since it was the Lord who'd given it to him. His whole ministry was to build up the church congregations and to strengthen the faith of believers. Allow me now a small digression on the question of power, just in to throw out some ideas and it may be something you want to think about. Paul was a strong character and a powerful figure in the church. So it seems at this point, it seems appropriate to ask, what is the place of power in Christian ministry? And how should it be exercised? In the Bible, the understanding of power moves from violence in the Old Testament 
to non-violence in the New Testament, from imperial power to relational power, from the divine right of kings to servant leadership, as we see in Jesus. And it's Jesus that is the point of change. Before his conversion, we've already read how St. Paul breathed out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He was a zealous Pharisee who knew the God of the Old Testament. And God is often portrayed in the Old Testament as zealous for righteousness, punishing wickedness, and seeking justice. Was this Paul's first model of power? We read in Acts 9 how Paul was threatening, violent, and punitive. He wanted to rid the world of Christians in a dominating way, using threats, punishment, and violence. Was this really God's way? Fortunately, God often chooses the most unlikely people to show the other side of his character and to undercut this sort of dominating power. Think about it. He often chooses those who are unable, inept, unprepared, and incapable in some way or another. Think of Sarah and Abraham, unable to have children. Rachel and Rebecca, David, Jeremiah, Job. And which people group did, Jesus, uh, did God chose, choose to be his light to the nations? Not the powerful Egyptians, but the enslaved people in Egypt, the tiny nation of Israel. In contrast to dominative power, which is based on domination and suppression rather than change and transformation, spiritual power is the ability to influence events and others through who we are and our own sharing of wisdom, not through external pressure. But it takes a long time. We have a God who's willing to wait. In his book, Richard Rohr, Hidden Things, says, we will not trust spiritual power until we've experienced a God who operates in the same way, a God who is willing to wait, allow, forgive, trust, and love unconditionally. When St. Paul met Jesus, his powerful ego was built on and changed transformed. And there are things that we can learn from this too. When you know that you're being used by a higher power, by God himself, you do not take your small power too seriously. When you have God's power internally through the indwelling Holy Spirit, you can use power for the common good. And when you have real power, you don't need to flaunt it. As Christians, I don't think we always get it right. 
despite even having the example of the Trinity, God, three in one. All the persons of God working together in unity. I'd love to hear your discussions on some of, some of that and what you think um, afterwards, or maybe you'll discuss it over lunch. But to return to the text, where is the place for boasting? Paul didn't want to boast, as his opponents did. But when he did, he said he'd not be ashamed, for his boast would be in the Lord, the only place it should be highlighting the the, the Lord's grace and mercy in his life. Paul knew that he had met Jesus and that Jesus had turned his life around. Jesus was now his primary focus, his goal, the Lord of his life. He'd been filled by the Spirit of Jesus and the Holy Spirit had given him a powerful ministry. Through him, many had come to faith, to faith in Jesus. So when Paul points to his bringing the gospel to Corinth, he is in fact boasting in the Lord, since God was the one who enabled Paul's ministry there. So first I said Paul didn't want to boast, but he had no need to boast falsely, as again his opponents did, in the work of others, taking credit where credit was not due. He didn't need to do that, for God had marked out his area of ministry. We have um, here the uh, almost Olympic type of illustration with runners with their lanes. The opponents had strayed into his lane. But Paul knew that he'd been given an area of ministry and that's where he'd worked. However, his hope was that the church, as the church in Corinth grew in faith, his apostolic ministry would continue to grow and would greatly expand, enabling him to preach the gospel in other regions beyond them. And he mentions those places, possibly Rome and Spain. He mentions those in Romans chapter 15. So since the Lord is the one who determines the measure of one's ministry, the only ground for boasting is what comes from the commendation of God. What matters to Paul is not the approval of the Corinthians, but God's commendation by working through him. So how does Paul help us to recognize a God-given ministry? I'm going to suggest four things. First of all, it's quite clear that Paul was genuine Although he used different styles of ministry at different times, his gospel message was consistent and his private life and public lifestyle backed up what he said. This is what we should expect of our pastors and teachers in the church today. We need to pray for our church leaders that they're not tempted to compromise with the popular culture of the day but be consistently faithful to God's calling in their lives and ministry. Paul was genuine. We look for genuineness. Secondly, Paul was passionate in proclaiming the gospel. And in my first what 
would um, good ministry look like. I didn't put that in. And it is absolutely essential. Paul was passionate in proclaiming the gospel. He knew he'd met Jesus, and Jesus had chosen him to proclaim the gospel. The central focus of his preaching was Jesus and his death on the cross. He did not popularize or dilute the gospel. His primary aim was to preach a clear message of salvation through Christ alone. Yes, he longed for new opportunities to talk about Jesus, and he prayed that they'd be effective. We need to pray that our leaders do not forget the gospel, and they continue to be passionate in sharing the good news about Jesus. Thirdly, Paul was dependent on God's empowering through his Holy Spirit. He knew that it was only through grace that he had been saved, that he was God's servant, and he needed the power of the Holy Spirit to work through him for his preaching to be effective in the hearts and minds of his listeners. His confidence was in God. And fourthly, he knew that everything began with God and everything ended with God. It was God's approval that counted. It all begins with God and it all ends with God. So in conclusion, I think we can do no better than be challenged to pray again for our church leaders, particularly our clergy and all those who preach or teach in the church or in small groups. So as I mention these final points, I'd like us actually to pray them. So I'm going to invite you to pray with me. Lord, we thank you for all who serve you in this church and this diocese. We pray that whatever their style or method of teaching, they will be faithful to the gospel and that their day-to-day lives will be consistent with what they teach. We pray that they'll be passionate to share the good news about Jesus. We pray that they will have humble servant hearts so that the Holy Spirit will work through them. And finally, when and if they feel criticized or under attack, that they will remember it's God's approval that counts. For we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. To him be the glory. Amen.